Welcome back to Behavioral Science for Brands, a podcast where we connect academics and practical marketing. Every other week, Richard and I sit down and we talk about the behavioral science that's powering some of America's most popular brands. Uh, I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shelton. Today, we're talking the Super Bowl, ads, and a return on investment. Let's get into it. Okay, Richard, we're talking one of the biggest advertising events of the year, the Super Bowl. Uh, I'll give a little history, but as a not sports fanatic, my history will be underwhelming to the sports <laughs> enthusiasts in the room. Uh, but the year is 1964. Uh, there are two professional football leagues in America. There is the AFL and the NFL, and they decide that uh, too much competition unlikely for them both to be, win and so what they do is they decide let's make a comp let's let's both have the our 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 leagues and then let's have a crowning reigning champ which eventually becomes the super bowl um but the super bowl more than a great sporting event which it is has become a cultural event a moment for celebrities, for brands, and for music to really shine on, on this platform that the NFL has built. Uh, last year, 2022, uh, 115 million people watched the Super Bowl, and they're watching many of them live. So they're intaking the ads in real time as they're having parties and events. And I would say for some, uh, very common here in America. I'm watching the Super Bowl for the ads. It's seen as a cultural moment to take in brand messaging. Uh, average uh, ad cost, Fox reported last year, uh, between six and seven million dollars for a 30 second spot. Very premium, very expensive. And there was a study on ad effectiveness that came out after the Super Bowl. It showed overall a six and a half percent increase across all viewers for intention to buy the brand after, but it was a mixed bag. Women were up 22%, men only up 1%, Gen Zers down a percent. So really it's a, there's a wide range of what's happening here, um, but it's our industry's, one of our industry's most talked about uh, cultural moments. So let's, we said, let's make an episode. Let's talk about what's going on here. Uh, where should we get started? I think, firstly, I'm sort of mind-blown by the scale of that viewership. I knew, obviously, Super Bowl was big, but that's almost exactly 50% of the, the population. In Britain, the closest comparison is when, for soccer, you know, our football, when we get close to the end of a global or European tournament, so these are every two years, Yes, you get a viewership in England. If England are playing when those last matches of about 20 million. So that's less than a third of a popul population. So the scale... You're saying, and in America, we're talking about almost half yeah. are watching yeah. it. And every year. Every year. Mm. And comparative to other TV programming, uh, we looked at the Nielsen numbers just uh, towards the end of 2023. Top performing TV shows, Monday Night Football, averaging 15 million viewers. But outside of sports... 60 Minutes was about nine and a half million viewers. 
Uh, the Voice, which is a popular television show, six and a half million viewers, nowhere yeah. near the impact of the Super Bowl. 10, 20 times the size. Yeah. So I, think, I think that's fascinating from a behavioral science perspective for, for three big reasons. The first reason goes back to your point about the average, uh, did you say six or seven million? Six to seven yeah. million was the average cost of a 30-second spot. So that's fascinating because there is an idea um, called costly signaling. Mm-hmm. So the study that's worth mentioning is a 1989 study by Amna Kamani, who was at Duke uh, University at the time. She recruits a group of people and she gives them what looks like a bit of magazine editorial. And it's about a shoe brand that's launching. So everyone gets the same basic content about the design of the shoe, what it looks like, how it was, was made. But she also drops in how much that brand is going to spend on advertising. And it's that fact that varies by reader. So some people hear it's the brand spending 2 million, some hear 10, some hear 20, some hear 40 million. Mm. Everyone has that number contextualized for them. They're all told that New Balance, Reebok, Nike, they spend about $10 million on a shoe launch. Everyone who reads this article is then asked to estimate the quality of the shoe, And what she finds is there is a very clear pattern. So from 2 to 10 to 20 million uh, perceived spend, there is a 14% increase in perceived quality of the shoe. Mm -hmm. Drops back slightly when you get um, to the 40 million level. Now, remember in this situation, no one is seeing those ads. So it's not about the actual advertising that's changing their mind. It's not about the frequency. It's the belief that if a brand is prepared to spend lots of money on their products, it must be higher quality. Kamani's explanation for this is that the public recognise brands will act in their own self-interest. So you're only going to spend extravagantly on a product. That you believe in. Exactly. Because it's not going to pay back. Otherwise, you'll go bankrupt. If your product is shoddy, you might get people to try it once but they're not going to come back and buy it again and again. They're not going to tell their friends it's amazing. So if you've splurged all this money on advertising, it isn't a great business model. The business model only works if people come back, they repeat buy, they tell everyone how amazing you are. So, so she argues there's something about being perceived to be willing to spend extravagantly on advertising that makes that advertising very powerful. And that's what the Super Bowl does better than anything else because as a consumer i know super bowl uh commercial pause are very expensive so if i see a brand run an ad in the super bowl right away costly costly signaling will tell me that this brand must be something they believe yes. in and of course consumers aren't going to have an in-depth completely accurate knowledge of the different cost of tv spots the different cost of media but they generally will be, will be able to rank things in a pretty uh, reasonable order. So I did a study a while ago where I asked people to guess what they thought buying um, a thousand exposures in an ad would would cost. Mm. And if you ask by media, they know cinema is more expensive than TV. They know TV is more expensive than YouTube. The exact estimate might not be right, but they they get the ranking. They get the ranking. Now extrapolating onto that. The Super Bowl is such a iconic event. 
there's enough stories about the expense. They might not know it's six or seven million, but they'll know it's a very, very heady investment. So if you appear in that, people believe you as a brand have a genuine faith in your product. And the fact that that acts as a screening mechanism and the shoddy providers won't have that faith, that's what imbues your product with this sense of, of quality. So right away, first thing we're taking away here is that because of costly signaling, being just being in the Super Bowl pod is going to help your brand because it, it implies the that the that the brand is going to be successful and that people believe that this is exactly. worth the investment. Exactly. And, and now Super Bowl is the extreme of this principle, but you can apply this on an ongoing basis. You can say, well, you can have that value with you know, double page spread in magazines, ninety second ads. You could even start thinking to yourself, why don't we try and discover what the perceived expense of various different formats are, or the perceived expense of different sponsorships, then work out what the actual expense is. And what you really want to do is pick media where there's a a big gap. You want to go in things where you don't have to spend that money, but people think it's very expensive. Out of home is a classic example where, you know, a lot of out of home boards are not very expensive, but a high perceived value to have a 40 foot wide sign painted for you. Yeah. 20 foot yeah. sign wide. It's 20 foot sign wide. Um, the other thing to raise here that um, marketers may not be thinking about is that you also have to think about how costly signaling affects different audiences. We've spent this whole time talking about how it affects the consumer, the end buyer, but you have other stakeholders that are important to the business's health, ownership, investors, distributors, wholesalers, other people that want to see your brand's investment uh, into the products that you're pushing. So it may be just as much of a value to show costly signaling to a wholesaler group or to a, a set of distributors as it is to show it to the consumer. Yeah, very good point. Uh, I think that's an audience that's very easy to, to forget about. But again, that principle of you as a brand can say all these amazing things you're going to do, but it's very different to actually commit to, in this case, the Super Bowl ad. Action speak louder than the words would be the, the principle. And for the 99.9% of listeners who are likely not running a Super Bowl <laughs> yeah. ad this year, uh, how can we take this lesson and apply it, as you said, to other media types where there's a big gap in perceived value and actual value or into other places where we can show, practice, actualize our inv- our belief in the brand, not just say it. Yeah. There is a danger sometimes that procurement becomes too dominant in an organization and people confuse efficiency and effectiveness. And there is a hidden cost for decreasing the length of ads, decreasing the size, trying to pick the format that is the smallest possible one that you can run in. Yeah, only because it costs less. Yeah. But we'd lose There's the still a role for extravagance, even in an era of efficiency, absolutely. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so that's one big takeaway. Yeah. Let's move on to a second insight, behavioral science insight that our listeners can, can consider. The, the, the second insight is the power of a public statement. Mm. You mentioned the phenomenal viewing figures. You've got half the population, 150 million people watching the the Super Bowl. Saying something in public has a very different effect than saying it something in private. So I ran a study a few years ago where we asked people to undertake a thought experiment. Said to people, 
in the UK, imagine you've met your local politician. We call them MPs, members of parliament. And you've met them one-to-one and you've been asking them about what they're going to do about speeding violations. Mm. And the MP promises that they are going to spend 10% more next year on uh, speed cameras. We then ask people to say whether they believe that politician. And 40% of people thought the politician was lying. Next group of people, exactly the same thought experiment, increased investment in speed cameras over the next 12 months. But this time we told those participants that the politician had made that claim not on a one-to-one basis, but they'd made it at a public meeting of 100 mm. people. Mm. Mm. In that setup, the proportion of people who think the MP is lying halves. It's now about 20%. Those two groups of people don't have a different view on the ethical nature of the MP. You know, they're equally distrusting, but they believe the statement more in that public setting because they recognise that the self-interest of the MP and the politician will, will keep them honest. If you break a public, you've told uh, a promise you've told in public to lots of people, you stand greater reputational risk than if you break a promise you've just told one person. The more public you make a statement, the more believable it will be. Yes, again, the Super Bowl does that to extremes, but you can take that principle and apply it on everyday marketing. If you think people won't trust your message, well, then make sure you put it into a broadcast medium. Put it into outdoor or radio or TV rather than one-to-one media like email or direct mail or even a digital banner. You want to be running where people know that message being overheard by others. Yeah, that's, uh, I, get, I guess one way you could take that is the medium, as you just did. The other way would be in creative. You tell people that you've made this promise or that this is something we've done before because it makes it more believable when you've even claim it in yeah. the creative. And th- there's something similar here again with the costly signaling principle. You as a person, as a brand, saying you're honest is no good because a dishonest actor and an honest one would both say the same thing. Exactly. But if you set up a situation in which it's in your self-interest to keep to that promise, then you become more believable. So it's a it's making these obvious cues that show it's in your self-interest to to be trustworthy. That's the powerful thing. Mm. Yeah, and I and leaving aside the staggering number of people that won't trust the yeah. right off yeah. the top, yeah. it's an interesting um, insight to play to more base human behavior. You know, the the that. To the the mistrust can still be used to build trust. The you know the insight that they may always lean towards. Well, this is always going to be. They're only going to say what's in their own best interest. Can still be used to build trust and 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 build behavior change. Absolutely, and I think you're right. There's quite a worrying social piece here about That's the right. low trust in politicians. But if you're a brand selling something, don't delude yourself. People do not. Trust what you tell them because everyone is aware whatever a brand is selling, they have a vested interest. To and you're actually truth. buying it. Yeah. yeah they need you they to They make it. their profit. They make their revenue by selling a product. So, of course, they're going to say it's amazing. Any of those claims will be treated with a degree of skepticism unless you use some of these counterbalancing messages about perceived 
expense of the message or making it the promise as public as possible. Yeah. It's interesting because this same approach was absolutely usable by brands, but also nonprofits, also social movements. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same uh disbelief that you can turn into uh, a more believable, a more believable claim by doing these tactics. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we have a third uh, behavioral science uh, impact of advertising in the Super Bowl that we want to talk about. And we'll go deeper from there. Behavioral Science for Brands is brought to you by Method One. Method One builds digital first marketing systems that help brands grow. They are behavior change experts who solve business challenges by creating meaningful connections with consumers with deep disciplines in many brand categories. Reach out to them if you'd like to be leveraging behavioral science in your marketing or advertising. Welcome back to Behavioral Science for Brands. Today's episode, Richard and I are going deep on the Super Bowl, but not just fawning over (laughs) how big it is and how amazing it is and what great brands do, but really trying to take the insights from the Super Bowl and saying, how can we apply them to all brands and all marketing? And what can we learn from this cultural, you know, phenomenon that is the Super Bowl? Uh, And because it's so big, because it has so many people listening and everyone knows how many people tune in, there's some knock-on benefit to this. Uh, Absolutely. We've already talked about if people know a claim has been made in public, it's more believable. But there's a second big benefit, which is summed up by um, a brilliant writer called Kevin Simler. So he has a blog called uh, Melting Asphalt. And he talks about the power of ads being around an idea called cultural imprinting. Mm. So what he means by this is if Corona as a beer associate themselves with all sorts of imagery about relaxation and being laid back, on the being beach. easygoing, people don't necessarily believe that. They don't think that they will become more easygoing by drinking Corona. But they believe that other people accept Corona's argument of face value. So by purchasing Corona, you can signal to other people that these are values that you believe in. Now, he argues that's the main way advertising works rather than Mm. direct persuasion. It's persuading an audience that other people believe that your brand exhibits certain attributes. So coming back to the Super Bowl, what's so powerful is not just that you've seen the ad for Corona, it's that you know everyone else has seen that ad for Corona. Now, when I first read about Simler's argument, I thought it was brilliant, but he does it very much from a base of logic and sound argument, doesn't support it with data. So it's quite a hard thing to test, but what I tried to do, and this was a while ago, so I've forgotten the exact numbers, but I got a sample of a few hundred people and I said to them, um, are you influenced by ads? And virtually everyone said no. It might have been a 10, 15, 20% of people. Of course not. No, no, I'm not that silly. But then I asked people, do you think others are influenced by ads? And you got a completely different response. It was 75 or 80% of people saying they thought others were influenced. So it does support this idea of of similar, this more indirect cultural imprinting argument. Yeah. And so we're talking about it in the context of the Super Bowl, which 
is a which which is signaling lots of people would be impressed or would receive that message a certain way. But as you were talking, I was thinking about how even small companies can use it like fashion labels. You know, you see somebody with a fancy bag. Uh, you and I would not be the experts mm-hmm. in what are yeah. extremely funny on my depth already. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A Louis Vuitton or a Hermes or a very fancy what does it mean to me is probably different than what I think it means to others who see me with it. It feels like it's in a similar space. Yeah, yeah there is an argument that similar pushes forward, which is brands have got to be very careful about over-personalization and, and tailoring of messaging. If Corona go out in the Super Bowl and everyone sees the same ad, they can maintain this position of easygoing and I will believe other people think that. But what brands tend to do is become greedy and they use digital targeted media to be all things to all people. So maybe Cronus starts saying to you that it's easygoing, to me that it's sophisticated, to someone else that it's associated with the arts. That works brilliantly for a while, but sooner or later we start to talk and we realise that we are not actually giving off the signal that we want Mm. uh, by buying Cronus, because it means all things to all people. So there's an argument not just about investing in well-watched public spectacles like the Super Bowl. There's also an argument about don't be greedy. Don't personalise your message too far to audience. You've got to have a consistent thread that all people believe about your products, even if they're never going to be buyers. And I think the build, the yes and to that to that idea is that the reason we want everyone to have some shared vision, some shared belief about the brand is because that's what creates momentum. If you think Corona is about the arts and I think Corona is about being laid back, then when we have a conversation about the brand, there's nothing, there's no connective tissue. And and so the brand cannot get any momentum. The brand can't start building that spin wheel, the flywheel. Why would I buy this product to signal a particular set of attributes. If nobody else it, believes it. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it doesn't mean yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a random noise. I could be saying completely the wrong thing. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think there's a couple of implications from that, that similar argument. Yeah. And, and bringing it back to media choice, because we were talking about it being a media choice to be in the Super Bowl. Um, how can we tie that to media choice for smaller brands or other brands? So again, it's not just the Super Bowl where this works. Yeah. Uh, I asked a group of people um, to imagine they saw a chocolate bar being advertised on TV. How many other people do they think had watched it? Then I did exactly the same thing about the chocolate bar, but said you've seen it on a banner ad. And people have a pretty fair view of the fact that a digital ad is going to be seen by a few people, a TV ad is going to be seen by loads of people. So it doesn't matter that their exact estimate is wrong in terms of viewership levels. What matters is they have a pretty accurate ranking of outdoor and TV being seen by lots of people at the same time, the same message, and a recognition that social media ads and digital ads are going to be far more tailored and viewed by smaller discrete audiences. So you can tap into this idea better with a broadcast medium than a one-to-one medium. Yeah. I think a a final theme from me that's kind of come up throughout this conversation 
is to give the audience, your buyers, a little more credit. You know, they have a general idea of the value of different media. They have a general idea that running in the Super Bowl is a very expensive, a premier thing. And using and giving them that credit allows you to, you know, create ads and create perception in a way that you would not if you if you think you're you know your brand is outsmarting the buyer yeah, you that's know? a very fair way of putting it yeah uh okay so let's let's bring our episode to a close let's uh go through um what are the big takeaways for our listeners today three big takeaways we had the command experience Sorry, command experience. That sounds like a 1970s rock group. Uh, the Kamani experiment around costly signaling. Yes. The more people think you've spent on your advertising, the more believable and high quality they'll believe your product to be. The second was around uh, the power of public statements. That was the study with politicians that I did. The more people we think have heard a claim, the more trust we give it. So... There is a very different reaction to a claim made on a broadcast media than a one-to-one medium. And then the final area was the similar argument of cultural imprinting. Advertising doesn't influence us because we necessarily believe the set associations that brand claims. It works because we believe that other people believe those claims. So there is a real power in using media that other people know have been seen on a very wide scale. That's where the the Super Bowl really hits its peaks. Uh, very, very cool. We'll be a little meta for a second, <laughs> yeah. uh, Richard. Can you think of a category or a type of brand or a specific brand where cultural imprinting worked on you or where the perceived popularity motivated you more than the actual claims or the actual product? Oh, that's a good question. So I think it might work better on products that are consumed in public yeah like cultural imprinting is not going to work with toilet paper yeah or your deodorant yeah right but for fashion brands i think it will be absolutely crucial around clothing uh, beer in the pub potentially mm-hmm. you know in a, in a publicly consumed environment so i think there is something really nice there around there probably is a variance by category is this something that people will know what i'm using or is it a private family only purchase yeah yeah and for me i think probably the automobile industry has done a great job absolutely what does this car say about me more than which one goes faster is a safer you know i think cars is a great one yeah yeah yeah. has better fuel efficiency excellent Well, until next time, uh, we invite you to send us a comment, reach out to us on social media. Richard and I's mission is to continue to keep this conversation about behavioral science and brand marketing connected, alive, vibrant. Um, So please reach out to us. And until we're together again, I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Shotton. 